I'm Susie Wiseman on Jacobin Radio today. Endo Callahan, a teacher from Ireland who's lived in Germany for 25 years and is a member of Delinka, joins us to analyze Germany's recent election called the political earthquake. The election surprise was that the far right, AFD, gained 94 seats in the German parliament, making it larger and more influential than the leftist Delinka, with the center, represented by Angela Merkel, eroded. We'll get into O'Callaghan's take on what this election portends for Germany, Europe, and indeed the world. And Richard Lichtman joins us to discuss the notion and failures of democracy in the current period. How do we characterize a system that has the form of democracy but not the substance? Has this always been the case or is there something new in the era of Trump? And are the features of what Richard sees as the limits of democracy contingent and passing or the permanent state of affairs? All this on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Endo Callahan with us. For the very first time, we're going to analyze the political earthquake that was the German election. And what makes this a political earthquake is that the center has lost its power in a sense. Angela Merkel was returned to power, but the far right in Germany has gained the alternative for Deutschland or the AFD. It's a far right nationalist party. Some are calling it openly fascist, at least in part, and they now have something like 94 seats, and they won more than 12%. And more importantly, it looks like the far right, which some call populist right, has outflanked the left, the Delinka party, which would have been that other flank. Inda Callahan is a teacher from Ireland. He's lived in Germany for a quarter century. He is a member of Delinka, and we'll ask him about that. And he's joining us today, staying up late from Chemnitz in Germany to analyze this political earthquake. And as I said, it's a surprise result. And of course, it makes the far right more influential than the leftist Delinka, and the center has been eroded. So with all of that, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Nice to speak to you. Very- I would differ slightly from your analysis because the drop at the left vote actually increased marginally in total. But while we lost about 400,000 votes in the east, we gained a million votes in the west. So the party has sunk deeper roots in the west, but our problems are primarily in the east. I was going to say this makes it interesting because, of course, the East was the so-called former communist bloc, and everywhere Mm -hmm. they seemed to move to the right, and a tremendous indictment of Stalinism, I would say. But go on. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Yes. While you're correct, on a national level, it is, uh, on a federal level, it is a massive shift to the right, and the center, which is essentially the... CDU, and uh, which is the Christian Democrat Party, the right-wing party, you could say the Conservative Party, and the SPD, the Social Democrats, who have been in government for the last five years, both of them lost heavily to the AFD. For example, nearly a million CDU voters went to the AFD, and nearly half a million SPD voters, according to the exit polls that were made. However, the AFD's greatest gain was 1.2 million from former non-voters. And you can also see a 
slightly similar pattern, although on a smaller scale for the Linke. So the Linke gained over 400,000 votes from the SVD and more than a quarter of a million votes from non-voters. So there's a polarization, although there's a shift to the right, there's also a polarization to the left as well. And what you could call the extreme center has collapsed. Yes, and this seems to be something that's happening elsewhere. And, of course, some of the articles that have appeared in the mainstream press say this could be the end of German exceptionalism or maybe eroding, as you said, not just Angela Merkel, but Germany. In Europe, I don't know. But one thing that maybe I would just like to ask you about this election, a lot of the press talked about the Jamaica Alliance. Could you say what that is? Well, it's comes from the official colors of the parties. A Jamaica alliance would be an alliance between the CDU, whose official color is black, the Greens, whose color is green, and the Free Democrats, who you could call liberal in this neoliberal sense, a liberal party that was traditionally socially liberal as well, but has moved sharply to the right. These three parties possibly, or at least because the Social Democrats have withdrawn, have said they are not interested in forming a grand coalition, partly because they're worried that if they go into a grand coalition again, that their vote will collapse even more. The SPD vote is the lowest since the foundation, of lowest percentage since the foundation of the Federal Republic in 1949. And the CDU vote is the second lowest vote since 1949. So... This is what we mean by the collapse of the center, if you like. But combining the three colors, the black, the green, and the yellow, those are also the colors of the Jamaican national flag, therefore a Jamaica coalition. But isn't it one that signifies a move to the right? Yes. Well, the SPD has said it's not interested in participating in this government. Partly, I can understand that. They need to recover. They need probably to make a shift to the left in the hope of winning back some of their voters that have deserted them either to De Linke, because, as I said, they lost nearly half a million, over 400,000 to De Linke. So they, I suspect that they think they have to make a shift to the left and that they can't be hostages to Merkel for another five years. I mean, they got only around about 20%. Given that we're calling this a political earthquake and a surprise result, and also sort of the end of German exceptionalism, if you will, it means that Germany is susceptible to the same trends that are happening elsewhere, like with Brexit, like with President Trump. Although it didn't happen in France, that is still a significant far-right populist movement. Many in the press are saying that this is a result of Islamophobia, and in particular, Angela Merkel's lenient policy towards Syria. And refugees. I wonder if you could sort of untangle that, because I also want to move to what's happening in the German economy. Yes, this is, shall we say, at one stage, Merkel made this open the borders. That is true. But one of the things that we have to look at is what she's done since then. There's been a continuous tightening up on the refugee question. The other thing that I would have to say is that on one level it's a surprise, but for those of us on the ground, it's not such a surprise in the sense that we did expect the AFD to get into Parliament this time. That it got in with 12.5% was the surprise for us, not that it got in. 
Just before you go on with that, the Alternative for Deutschland, or the AFD, mm-hmm. right after the election, one of the main figures left, and so the party split. Well, maybe you could just tell our listeners, what are the constituent components of the AFD, and how would you characterize it? Okay, the AFD was set up about six or seven years ago. By It was set up as a party against the euro, basically critical of wanting to go back to the Deutschmark was set up by an economist called Luca. It was financed, you could say, by small business. That is those elements of capital that are dependent on the internal market, as distinct from those that are dependent on, like the large companies are dependent on the export market. Mm. The government policy over the last 20 years, regardless of which government is in power, of which parties are involved in it, has been promoting exports. And the euro is very useful for that because despite the fact that the German economy is strong, because it's part of the euro and there are weak parts of the EU which bring down the value of the euro, which means that it increases sales for export companies abroad. That's been the policy of of all governments since the introduction of neoliberalism way back in the 90s. So the AFD was set up to oppose this, but it opened itself to the right, and two elements, additional elements came in. One was, if you like, national conservative elements that were based on small-scale capital, but also appealing to, if you like, those who felt that the modern world was becoming, that they were losing their national culture and all those things, the internationalization, if you like, of culture. So you've got that element, which is also strong within the Christian Social Union, the Bavarian sister party of the CDU. But in other parts of Germany, the CDU organized the CSU doesn't. So many people from the right-wing national conservative part of the CDU were attracted to this party. And what about the Uh, anarchists? Another element, however, is an group of people who are essentially neo-fascists, who are not from the traditional Nazi parties. So these two elements moved into the AFD, and essentially they booted out Luca, the founder of the party, and his, if you like, uh, neoliberal economic liberals that, that won against the euro. And interestingly enough, in this election campaign, the euro wasn't mentioned at all. Interesting. It was solely they ran a uh, campaign which you could say is essentially racist. And the problem is, however, that there is a faction fight going on within the AFD about which wing will set the tone. Either the national conservatives, who are racist but not fascist, I would say they would prefer to continue with uh, bourgeois democracy, etc., and the neo fascist wing, which is open to, if you like, what would be the equivalent of the Breitbart people and so on, the identitarians and the various other far-right, the alt-right, as well as being the open fascists. And some of the people actually have, in the leadership of the fascist wing, neo-fascist wing, have actually written for the press of the traditional fascists like the NPD, the National Democrats, who are essentially open Nazis. 
This is very interesting. And would you say that, just because I want to move on to the rest of it, but that the AFD is right now an unstable formation given all of these various parts of it? Yes, it's unstable. In that sense, it hasn't established which. But the dominant wing, one of the reasons that Petri left, she was the the federal chairperson, co-chairperson. One of the reasons she left is basically because she had been sidelined. Mm. She led the fight of the right against the, if you like, financial liberals back five years ago. But there's been a fight between her and the neo-fascist wing. And basically also here in Saxony, she was the leader also in Saxony, as well as on the federal level. And she was already being sidelined in Saxony by the neo-fascist wing. And basically, she made the break just after the election in the most dramatic possible way. I suspect that she, in order to have influence, she stayed in the party and got elected. She won one of the what's called the direct seats. That is, she was personally elected rather than being elected from the party list. She was strengthening her hand. Right. So if we could just move a little bit, and uh, the mainstream press seems to be saying that German industry and exports, as you began to say, continue to do relatively well. Mm -hmm. But the limits for the rest of the population have been shown. There's a rising precariat. There's a rising poverty rate. So Mm -hmm. one thing for our listeners to situate the sort of polarization that you're seeing in Germany and the rise of the far right, not just on the Islamophobic question or the question of feeling unsafe, is whether or not this export machine that's helped Germany for so long is still, could be said to be helpful to the working class? Well, one of the things is that for large sections of the organized working class in industry, like the metal workers and so on, they still have relatively high wages. They're still relatively strong, but the unions for years in these sectors have been basically integrated with the employers, basically defending the, their industry base. But in return, they've got relatively high wages. Mm. But in other sectors, you've got, as you said, there's the increasing precariat, people on temporary contracts, also people who are the German equivalent of zero-hours contracts. Mm-hmm. Or contingent labor, as we call it here. Yeah, don't know what it's called in the States, but basically... Zero hours is what they call it in Britain. The other thing is that in real terms, and sometimes even in absolute terms, large sections of the population are earning less than they earned 17 years ago in the year 2000. Right, so wage stagnation. Uh, Also, one of the great problems in the East is, if you like, slightly older. The people who were socialized in the GDR, uh, one of the reasons they've seen the GDR collapse, then the West came with wild promises, uh, blooming landscapes, etc., etc. But their real experience was that they became unemployed. Unemployment was totally unknown in the GDR. Everybody had a job, right? Basically, even they, at a lower level, they, but, had, right. they even had to a certain extent. You could say they had to have a job. Exactly. Um, then you ended up in the 90s with uh, effectively in East Germany out of a population of 18 million. It's, sunk now to about 16 million in the former GDR, but you had about 3 to 4 million people unemployed. That wasn't the official figure, but people in retraining schemes and so on, but people who 
well, basically were in this precarious situation, and many of them have never worked, had a proper job ever since. These people traditionally, they weren't socialists, but they tended to support the Linka. Okay. And the Linka now, one of the problems is that the Linka, you could call a lot of the leading figures in the Linka in the East are what you could call realos, realists. Mm. They want to be in government, whereas in the West, the Linka is essentially has its roots in the movements, the social movements. And um, I should and just so say, and uh, O'Callaghan is a member of Delinka and was on the executive for the state of Saxony previously. I do want to move to a description of what Delinka is, and we don't have all that much time. But mm-hmm. just before that, and I wanted to ask about the impact of this election on Europe. Does it mean that the Germans are going to be even less likely to make concessions to the rest of Europe? Are we going to see more sort of, what, push for austerity to the rest of Europe? That's unclear. If you like, the CDU's hard man on the economy, Schäuble, has just resigned as the finance minister. One of the reasons I suspect for that is that she needs him in Parliament rather than zooming around Europe, telling people what to do, Mm -hmm. Um, in order to hold her much weakened party together. She needs someone strong. And Schäuble, for her, is not a threat because he's older than her and would not challenge her for the leadership. So basically she needs a strong man in the Bundestag to keep control of a rather fractious parliamentary group. Now, what's not clear is because negotiations are still going on to form a government, but it's quite possible that the leader of the FDP might become the new finance minister in a coalition government. Okay. That would mean, actually, they have a much harder position than Schäuble had. Schäuble was the hard man, but this means that the demand from places like Greece and Italy and the other debtor nations will probably go through the roof. Right. But that's unclear what will happen, because basically, to get this Jamaica coalition, she has to get both the Greens and the FDP on board, And essentially, both of the FDP and the Greens both compete for the same, if you like, well-to-do middle-class sector of the electorate. And they have quite different policies. But the difficulty will be managing to get them, all the three parties, into a coalition. It could take months. Okay, well, in the last uh, minutes that we have in the show, Andy O'Callaghan, I'd like to turn to Delinka. As uh, one of the articles that I read online said that this is a wake-up call, this election, for the resistance Mm -hmm. and that it expresses the result of the Bundestag election, expresses a crisis of the political system, which you've just described because the political center has pretty much lost out with gains to the Mm -hmm. right and also, as you've mentioned, gains to the left. But you also mentioned that there are divisions between DeLink in the East and DeLink in the West. And maybe you could just in the next minute or so, describe what Delinka is, its policies, and how you see it in this next period. Okay. The roots of Delinka come in two different sections. In the East, it's the successor party, you could say, of the former ruling party, except in the sense that all the opportunists and so on got out in the 90s. So I would say that the majority of members of Delinka that stayed with the party were serious about having some sort of alternative 
which they called socialism. Mm. The other part of the movement has its roots in the West. From There was a split to the left of a number of important trade unionists in 2004 during the Red-Green government, the SPD and Green Coalition, and they linked up with people from the movement, from people like Attack, and there was also at that time there was a movement against the hearts for reforms of the unemployment system and the welfare system, a movement on the streets, particularly strong in the East. And people like myself were involved in this movement also here in the East. When the unification became between the WASG, as we called, Electoral Alternative for Social Justice, which was mainly in the West, but which I was a member of in the East, mm-hmm. and the former if you like, the people left over from the former SED that had gone through the various permutations over the 15 years until we were founded 10 years ago, we were able to find a basis for unity on the basis of posing an alternative, which became the linker. But, of course, there are the various parts. There's the movementist part, there's the people who have close connections with sections of the trade union movement, which are mainly in the West, but there are some of them also in the East. And then you have, if you like, the people who I would call the realists, or sometimes they get called leftists in the party, call them the more left-wing elements in the party, call them the government socialists, the ones who are actually in power in Berlin and Thuringia and so on. And there's a conflict between the two. What we need to do, however, um, there's a certain amount of agreement between all sections is we have to start mobilizing not only in the parliaments but also on supporting the social struggles, particularly struggles of people like uh, care workers and so on. There's a big struggle going on because they're very low paid and working conditions are not that good nurses and so on. That's the direction I think that we have to go. I want to thank you so much. We've run out of time, Endo Callahan, but I certainly want to call you back because this is an unfolding situation, and I want to thank you for your analysis. On Germany's political earthquake, Endo Callahan is a teacher. He's from Ireland, but he's lived in Chemnitz in Germany for 25 years. He's also a member of Delinka, and you can find him also a Marxist internet collective editing and translating an awful lot of material. And I want to thank you for staying up late and joining us, Dendo Callahan. Thank you, Susie. I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you so much. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. We'll be right back with Richard Lichtman. Welcome to Jackman Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm very pleased to have Richard Lichtman with us. He's joining us today to discuss the notion and failures of democracy in the current period. How do we characterize a system, he says, that has the form of democracy but not the substance? Has this always been the case, or is there something new in the era of Trump? These are just some of the questions and features that we're going to discuss in this segment and with that Richard sees as the limits of democracy. And I'm going to ask him whether or not this is a permanent state of affairs. It's always been the state of affairs or it's something new that we're seeing right now. Richard is a writer, a teacher, a philosopher. He specializes in the relationship between the social, political, and psychological dimensions of human life. He's written several books, and it includes essays in critical theory and also the production of desire, 
among many others. Just Google Richard Lichtman. He taught at the Wright Institute, and you can find some of his writings. Richard, welcome to Jackman Radio. Welcome to you. I know we're limited for time, so I will get into things immediately. Well, okay? let's ask right now, like, what prompted you to be worried about this? And I know that you started out uh, thinking about this book that you said was not very good, and I agree with you, by Timothy Snyder, but it's on how do we characterize the present period and what is the nature of our democracy. Well, being strongly influenced by Marxism, I've always had uh, very dubious uh, accounts of uh, liberal definitions of democracy because they leave out the whole class structure and the basis of capitalism. My concern here with democracy has been long-standing, 40 or 50 years or so, ever since I started thinking as an adult. And the basic consideration goes back to reading the classics. I mean, the classics in the liberal era, like Locke and Hobbes and Rousseau and so on. And ultimately, the question that concerned me most was, what was the structure and distribution of power in supposed democracies, going back to the people I just mentioned and beyond, of course. And it was obvious to me that if the distribution of power was radically unequal, whatever the formal structure was, the system was not democratic. In other words, I was uh, building a definition of democracy that was substantively egalitarian. That's my fundamental definition. That egalitarianism runs across all the institutions in the society in what I regard as a genuine democracy. So the economic, the political, the social, the cultural, the intellectual, all those have to be substantially equal in order for me to want to call the system democratic. Is that making sense so far? Yes, and I think that Marx would agree with you and that the idea is that in this case, democracy means that it's at the heart of socialism, and yet it's a word that capitalism has appropriated, and yet, you know, and there's a tension that you obviously are going to get to, which is the tension between equality and democracy. Yes, and the whole point of, uh, I'm going to make a very simple distinction because you only have 20 minutes. I'm going to distinguish between the objective definitions of democracy, which uh, focus on the rules and structures of the system on the one hand, what I'll call the subjective characteristics of democracy, which focus on people's attitudes, beliefs, desires, understandings, and such. Now, the two of those can't be separated, but they are distinct in my mind. And the question is, in the present time, just to jump ahead to where the audience is located historically, I would say that under this current regime that we're in, and its pathology under Trump, we have both aspects suffering from the absence of equality, or, let's put it positively (laughs) and negatively at the same time, we have both uh, of these characteristics dominated by the notion of inequality. So the structures of the law are, despite the fact of what they look like formally at times, as egalitarian systems, are substantively inegalitarian or unequal power structures. And on the other hand, which is very obvious to everyone, the mass of individuals are not equally constituted in terms, let's say, to begin with, of their understanding of what it is that's occurring in the society around them. The 
common feature of the objective and the subjective definitions of democracy to me in the present era is they both serve, they are both dominated by, egregiously dominated by the notion of inequality. So the actual structures of the system and the manner in which people understand and comply with the system are both dominated by very powerfully distinguishable forms of power. I'll stop for a minute to make sure that makes sense. Well, I think it makes sense, and I want to ask you, you know, just to develop the point and to answer this. How, apart from, let's say, the discourse and the manner of this administration, is this different substantially from what has come before? Well, it's very important not to get misled by the uh, pathology of uh, Trump because he attracts an enormous amount of attention because of his peculiarities and his distinct irrationalities. He doesn't uh, sound like President Roosevelt, for example, or anybody else we can think of. Uh, But what his function is, is to preserve and expand the inequalities, both of the structure of the system on the one hand, as he did, for example, when he supported a Supreme Court justice who was most likely to vote to increase inequality in the system. And everything he does also focuses uh, attention on the inequality of the populace, and which is why we have 35% of the population supporting him no matter what he does. I would regard that as a pathological subjectivity. That doesn't mean that the uh, prevailing majority have any better a grasp of what's going on in the world, but they're not as fixated on a given individual who they uh, swear their allegiance to no matter what he does, who claims that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not suffer the consequence. That's a kind of pathology we haven't visited before. We haven't had anyone who's been willing to say any such thing. So if to just to sum up in one sentence... Trump is misleading in the sense that he serves a purpose. The purpose is usually said to be himself, and that's certainly true. But he serves himself by serving institutions in the society. He serves the monopoly capitalist structure, and he serves the irrationality of the mass of the majority of the people. Richard Lichtman, if you see that those who support him have supported him because they see him, as something different than the establishment. And in a way, the vote for him, many think, was kind of, you know, a middle finger to the establishment. And then he governs in perpetuating the very things that caused them to turn against the establishment in the first place. How do you see that? Do you see this in a political, a psychological way? How do you see his support? Well, if we're talking about people's support, then we're more in the subjective realm. And that support I would define very quickly as the idea of an individual who can defy the system. In fact, what I've been arguing for the last five or ten minutes is he doesn't defy the system. He supports the system, but he appears to defy it because he does such things as make the statement that I just referred to about uh, killing somebody on Fifth Avenue And that sounds like it's completely independent of anybody's previous rational judgment as a president. But the 35% who support him, support him in part, I think, because at some deep level, and I hate to get into this kind of amateur psychoanalysis, 
But I think a large number of the percentage of people in the United States feel powerless, and they identify with a person who seems to be able to establish his power. And that seems to be Trump. He doesn't have to go through a great deal of regiment, it seems, although, of course, he needs the support of the corporate dominant economic system, and he couldn't exist without it. And in fact, he is its servant rather than its master. He's not uh, doing what uh, people claimed happened in Nazi Germany. He's not dominating the economic system. He's basically supporting dominant corporate capitalism. That's what his ultimate function is. That's what his tax program will be like and all the rest of his procedures. So there's a dichotomy in Trump. There's what he actually does and there's the way in which he appears. And the way in which he appears is appealing to 35% of the population, we are led to believe. And they uh, support him because they feel powerless and they want to identify with somebody who seems to be able to exert any power under any circumstances. He can attack a woman's genitals. He can attack a person on Fifth Avenue. That appeals to very deep and, I suppose, powerful appeals that uh, 35% of the population find more important and more compelling than any of the defects of Trump. So, Richard Lickman, you started out by talking about uh, democracy and how you defined it, and then your description of the Trump era is one where essentially it's business as usual, except for this sort of irrational statements, or let's call it the unconventional statements, or even the Twitter feeds, you didn't mention that, but just his communication style and the kind of support that he has garnered. But let's take it back to democracy, because I think you're, you were also saying that democracy seems to be more threatened now under Trump than, say, under a Bush or an Obama. I think it's more threatened under Trump. And I think you and I had a previous conversation, I will uh, inform the audience of, where we got into a discussion of what we should call this system, and I used the term totalitarian at one point, and you objected to that. Right. And I understand the objection. This doesn't sound like uh, Italy or Nazi Germany. But what it does sound like to me is corporate capitalist domination. It's a, that's the system that I see before me. And I use the term domination because domination does not eliminate protest. Totalitarianism, by its very meaning, means total. Domination means more control, more power, more influence than any other group in the system. And the corporate capitalist structure seems to me to be the dominant institution. So I would use substitute for totalitarian domination, okay. which leaves some breathing room to those who protest against the system. Well, including and, me, and maybe I could just very, very rapidly say that I do not accept that it would be totalitarian, even though... And I also thought that Stalinism was not quite totalitarian. It was an attempt to be totalitarian uh, because right. it, there was never total control of the economic mechanism or, you know, of the map of the human mind, if you want to uh, see it like that. And I don't see that here either. But, you know, you said it's a new form of domination. I think I just want you to try to address how this is different. Hasn't democracy always been limited? And, you know, hasn't there also because always... There was no pretense of democracy under Hitler, right? Under the Nazi party, nobody pretended or had any illusion that there was anything approaching democracy in Nazi Germany. No, but I'm talking about here in the United States. 
Okay, well, in the United States, we have all sorts of institutions that appear formally and abstractly to be supporters of democracy. We have uh, a legislature, for example. We have a, a president who is chosen. We have a Supreme Court that is chosen by a president who is chosen. In other words, these all seem to be exercises of choice. And we tend to associate democracy with uh, choice, the individual having alternatives where the choice can be made among the alternatives. But I think we have to get closer, maybe in another program, where we discuss some of the notions of the Frankfurt School of critical theory, because the idea of having choices doesn't tell us what the nature of the choices happens to be. And the choice between a given Republican and a given Democrat these days is really, I would say, a pseudo-choice or the pretense of a choice. So it looks like a democratic system, but there are very clear boundaries, restrictions, limitations on what the Republican and the Democrat can propose. They can't really propose, either of them, a significant transformation of the tax system, take an idea that's around right now, and they can't propose any really uh, significant alteration in the corporate structure. They may have disagreements among themselves, but between the two of us and anybody else who is sympathetic to socialism, these corporate systems have a persistence and a dominance that makes it impossible to unmask them. So that very few of the population in the United States would consider eliminating the large corporations and replacing them with genuinely social democratic institutions. The other issue, just in terms of democracy, the fact that uh, the Republicans could not repeal the Affordable Care Act with all of its you know, problems or propose their monstrous so-called replacement, and I think that it may be the same with tax reform, the fact that they can't get it through must, I would say, be seen as some measure of democratic opposition that doesn't allow the worst forms to go through. Is that But to you... you'd agree, wouldn't you, that the Affordable Care Act, better than the alternative that was put forward, is a very restricted and limited uh, account of how to take care of uh, health in the United oh, States. Oh, absolutely. We're still a very backward nation. We don't resemble even the, uh, the accounts in Europe, for example, in countries like uh, Germany or Sweden or Denmark or wherever, where everybody is covered. And we're not anywhere close to that. So why do we think we have choice in this system? We don't have any real choice. And we have, what, 25 million people who are not covered at all. Do you think we have veto power in any way? It's much easier to have veto power in a society like ours because any of the pro pro procedures put forward, let's take Bernie Sanders, for example. Uh, he's not making any um, radical assault on the income tax system, for example, or on the corporate structure. He wants to moderate it, and that's what we get in this society. We get changes around the edge, changes around the fringe. We don't have any alternative that gets to the heart of the matter. So we're stuck with this kind of dominating capitalist system and all its excruciating pain and suffering that it produces regularly. And that spreads through the entire society, into the political system, into the legal system, into the manner in which I just lent to a lecture yesterday, Terry Cooper's talking about his new book called Solitary, the way in which 
prisoners are treated, thrown into solitary, abused as human beings. That's part of the culture of this capitalism that most people don't want to pay attention to. It's too gross. It's too painful. It's too disgusting to think of a person in a cage for 10, 20, or 30 years of his or her life. Right. So we don't, we don't pay attention to it. I'd say that's a sign of a pathological culture. We have no respect for individuals as such. We care for the people whose influence can support our influence. So, Richard, we have about a minute and a half left, and I want to let you take it and, of course, tell the listeners that I'm going to have you back to talk about, let's say, approaches to change it, because certainly right now in the Senate and in the House, there's a bill for Medicare for All, and it's garnering widespread support because the population supports it, especially because, I think, of Bernie Sanders' uh, longtime campaign and also, you know, the Republicans' attempt to take away the inadequate health care that people now have access to? Well, I think Bernie Sanders is an advance, not because what he proposes is a solution to the problem, but because it at least dislodges the corruption that has restricted this system for a very, very long time. But I wanted to suggest to your readers, if they can get hold of Terry Cooper's book on prison systems, for example, and see the way in which we treat supposedly human beings in the most inhuman fashion in solitary confinement and the rest of the prison system, you'd understand what I meant by saying this is not a democratic culture. This is a vicious, destructive culture or anti-culture in which people who are in our way are put out of our sight, put into cages, literally into cages, and ignored and permitted to rot for the rest of their lives. Do you have any message of hope as we go out today, Richard? My message of hope is that people, is the last of uh, Marx's remarks. Remember when he said the people have previously tried to understand the world, the point is to change it? Yes. The thesis on Feuerbach? Yes. I think that what one needs is to take one's theory and bring it into the world to change it along the lines that socialists understand requires their commitment to an egalitarian system in which there is genuine democracy along all the lines, all the institutions we've talked about. The economic system to begin with, the political, the judicial, and so on and so forth. All of those aspects have to be democratized, which means also people need to be educated, they need to educate themselves, they need to study and have conversations, meaningful ones, with people they don't necessarily agree with but people who take the idea of trying to discover the truth to be the basic requirement of a full human life. I want to thank you so much for joining us, Richard Lichtman. His books include Essays in Critical Social Theory, The Production of Desire, Google Him. He's a longtime writer, teacher, and philosopher, and has been speaking to us today from the Bay Area. And And my book is translated into Turkish, if you've got any turkey readers. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for joining us today, Richard Lichtman. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Jacobin Radio.